Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 16. The Gospel of Mark chapter 16. Speaking of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the faith of believers, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. That's an amazingly powerful and poignant statement because it means, among other things that we could talk about, that faith in God at all is absolutely worthless if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. The power that fuels our faith today is the power of the resurrection that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, which means the resurrection of Jesus is the key to our salvation. Without it, there is none. Without it, no one will endure to the end. The door to eternal life cannot be opened. And if the door to eternal life is shut, there's no hope for anything. There will never be any true justice. There will never be any true forgiveness. There will never be an end to pain or suffering or violence or sin or death. In fact, those things will be the things that shape the future and determine people's destinies, which means there will never be any future. Eventually, everything will end and be covered in darkness. Humankind will never rise above its own weaknesses or failures, and we need Only look to or no further than ourselves to know how fragile human resolve is. Which is why this morning we're going to focus on the resurrection through the eyes of a man who had utterly failed Jesus. And who would have spent the three days and nights between his death and his resurrection overwhelmed by guilt, by sorrow and fear that his life was over. That God would never accept him now. It's the way we all have felt or maybe feel right now when we consider the debt that we owe to God. When we think about our own records, our own shortcomings and failures. But Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. For that reason and that reason alone, our preaching this morning. The preaching from men like me is not in vain. And neither is our faith, even if it's just hanging on by a thread. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives hope and the future back to humanity. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning, for your Son who has set us free and given us life. And God, I ask that for his name, for his glory, You would overcome me with your Holy Spirit and fill me and consume me that I might speak the truth and nothing else. Please do a miracle in me. Please do a miracle in those who listen. And reveal your Son to us through your word. I ask and pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Mark begins his very brief account of the resurrection like this in Verses 1 and 2, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome 
brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. The Jewish Sabbath ended at sundown every Saturday. It was probably around that time that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome went to the market to buy the spices they would need to anoint the body of Jesus. They really wouldn't have had time to do this when he was crucified, when he died on Friday because the Sabbath was about to begin. So more to show respect and honor for the one who had died than to preserve the corpse per se. It was important to them to anoint Jesus' body with myrrh and aloe and other precious spices. These women had personally witnessed the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. They were adamant to continue showing their devotion to their Lord. Prior to his death in Mark 14, a woman had brought a flask of the oil of spikenard, poured it on Jesus' head. She was early in anointing him for burial, but that was the only anointing his body would receive. And so these ladies wanted to make sure that he had a proper anointing now that he had actually been Buried, but they weren't going to find a body to anoint when they got to the tomb. Very early on Sunday morning, about as soon as it was light, they made their way there. We pick it up in verse 3, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Jesus was buried in a tomb that would have been cut into a wall of rock, basically a cave. That was the customary form of burial for the Jews. They didn't put people's bodies in coffins and bury them in the ground. They hollowed out these caves in rock, porous rock that would have allowed for that sort of thing and put pedestals or shelves inside on which to lay the bodies. They would then cover the entrances with square stones to protect them from grave robbers. But more wealthy families, like that of Joseph of Arimathea, who had provided the tomb for Jesus, used circular cut stones to cover the entrances. Those went into a rut that was dug out in front of it so that if you needed to move it and you had the strength present to do so, you could roll it aside if you wanted to. These three ladies know they aren't strong enough to do that, and they're wondering who they're going to get to help them. Apparently all the muscle, right, the male disciples are still hiding. They're not present. When they finally get there, these ladies, the problem has already been solved. Verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. The stone had been rolled away. Somebody had already moved it. Matthew's gospel lets us know exactly how that happened. He wrote, behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Matthew 28, 2, God had ordered the stone rolled away, and the tomb opened. Verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. This is an angel from heaven. Mark mentions his white robe. Matthew says that his countenance was like lightning. His clothing is white as snow. In 28.3 of his gospel, Luke speaks in chapter 24 of his gospel about shining garments. These ladies know this man is not of the earth, and they're alarmed, they're frightened. The word for alarmed here indicates profound fear or distress. It was the same word, by the way, used to describe what Jesus was going through inside in the garden the night before he died. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The angel tells them, They do not need to be afraid. Why not? And the answer to that question 
is the most amazing announcement in the history of the world. Jesus, the man that had been crucified, is risen. They were at the right tomb, in other words. They had not made a mistake. It was Jesus of Nazareth whom God had raised from the dead. He's not here anymore. The angel encourages them to look at the very shelf where his body had been lain. Listen. Here in churches, we assume this is the truth. And we believe it's the truth. I can't convince you that what we just read is true if you don't believe it. I wish I could. I I can't. But there are just a few things you may want to consider as you think it through and wonder if it's true. Because it's an amazing thing that for all intents and purposes is unbelievable, right? Nobody in here would believe this for real if God had not illuminated them and brought them to life, enabling them to believe it. It takes a miracle to believe that this person that literally died was literally raised from the dead. For one thing, Mark is adamant to tell us exactly who the three women were that saw it. He uses their names and he uses them. Do you know why that is? Because by the time he wrote his gospel, they were still alive. And he's trying to tell the readers, go and ask these women what happened. Ask them what they saw. Go ask the eyewitnesses. That's a very brave card to play. Because as the Greek philosopher Celsus, for example, who was a prominent critic of Christianity, wrote in the second century AD, Christianity cannot be true because, and I quote, The resurrection is based on the testimony of women. And women, of course, are hysterical, he wrote. And you can't trust women. Celsus said it, not me. All right? As you know, in ancient societies, unfortunately, wrongly, tragically, women were largely marginalized to the extent that their testimony, not even in court, was not given any credence basically whatsoever. It wasn't even admissible often in court. I think we talked about this in my first Easter here maybe. So why in the world does Mark say so adamantly, listen, go ask the eyewitnesses whom are all women. Why would he do that? Because that's what actually happened. They were present. This is what they saw and reported. It's just the truth of what happened. If you're trying to hide something that isn't true, you don't lead with all the eyewitnesses to first seeing it were women. But he's not trying to lie. He's not telling a story. He's telling the truth. That's who saw it. Go to them. Ask them. It's the truth of what happened. That's one reason to consider that maybe this is more than a fairy tale. Another one would be all the disciples, except, of course, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, died for their devotion to the truth of the resurrection. They would not deny that they saw him alive. They would not deny that he had risen from the dead. And as Chuck Colson, if you know that name, a member of Nixon's cabinet during the Watergate scandal, who eventually came to Christ, talking about how the resurrection convinced him, said that men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. Absolutely. But they will never give their lives for something they know to be false. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He walked out of that tomb, literally, bodily, alive. And he's alive this morning 
as we speak. The angel continues in verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the first commission technically to go and tell after the resurrection came to these women for the disciples. Tell them Jesus was alive. Tell them he will meet them in Galilee just as he had promised them back in chapter 14 Verse 28, and by the way, the angel is saying, when I say go tell the disciples, I do mean Peter also. We will come back to this. But for the moment, remember that this happened. Jesus did appear to his disciples before they left Jerusalem in Luke 24, 36 to 49, where he visited them in the upper room. But the Gospels also record, John 21, for example, that he was with them for several weeks in Galilee. Verse Eight, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's hard to imagine exactly how they were feeling, right? Was it fear, shock, joy, hope, astonishment? Probably all of those things. As they go, they can't even talk about it until they finally got to the disciples, of course. They said nothing to anyone until they did. The first word of the resurrection came to the disciples from these three Women in Mark, the biblical record is based on their reports of what happened that morning. God finds it reliable. Mark is not interested in what the legal courts consider admissible. He's interested in the truth and what actually happened. So he details what the women said, down to the detail when you think of it, of where even the angel was on the right side, right? It's crucial, beloved, that we believe these things. Because Paul will go on to say in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We need both to be saved. We need forgiveness of our trespasses and we need to be made righteous supernaturally. We will not, by our good behavior and by our effort, after being forgiven, do enough righteousness for God to consider us as righteous as we need to be. If Jesus doesn't not only die for our sins, but raise from the dead, rise from the dead to justify us and make us righteous, we will not be saved. Salvation comes simply by believing that that's what he did. He did all the work. We simply agree with it. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was announcing that he accepted this in-our-place payment that Jesus made for our sins. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus that also means all who believe in him are now righteous and accepted and vindicated by God. By the power of God, Jesus is alive. By the grace of God, beloved, so are we. And that includes Peter. Why does that matter? It's a very strange thing to say. A little editorial comment in verse 7 that's so strangely specific for the words of an angel from heaven on the morning that Jesus rises from the dead. It should be a, a bigger deal. Just And Peter, this guy, Peter. For the answer as to why this is there, we need to go back to the night before the cross. 
when Jesus told the disciples in Mark 14, 27, that all of them would fall away that night and be scattered, forsake him and flee. Peter, however, one of his disciples, the foremost disciple of the twelve probably, said in verse 29, Not me, Lord. Even though they fall away, I will not fall away. Jesus said, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter said emphatically, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. All the disciples said the same. Those are strong words. And there's no reason to think they didn't mean them. Or that they were lying or didn't intend on staying with him through it all. Of course they did, I think. Of course they meant it when they said it. But just 19 verses later, when the crowd from the chief priests and elders showed up with Judas, the betrayer, to arrest him, in verse 50, they all left him and fled. Later, that night, that morning, early in the morning, as Peter was watching the events unfold from the courtyard, a servant girl of the high priest recognized him and said, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. He denied it. I don't know. I don't understand what you mean. The rooster crowed the first time. Then she saw him again later with the bystanders and said, this man is one of them. He was with him, but he denied it again. Then still later, many of the bystanders start to recognize him. He invokes a curse and he swears, I do not know the man of whom you speak. And immediately, the text says, Mark's word, immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered and he broke down and he wept. He had failed, failed Jesus. And he has to be thinking that surely denying Jesus like that three times at the moment of his death is surely the unpardonable sin. There's no coming back from this. Even Hollywood picks up on this idea of how horrible it would have been if Jesus was who he said he was to deny him. There's a, I, I doubt anybody has ever seen this movie. You shouldn't. Like it's not, it's not, there was a Dracula movie like 20 years ago that the whole, the, the, the Lord vampire was Judas Iscariot. Like because he had betrayed Jesus. Like that's how, even, even in Hollywood they know, like that's a big deal, right? Don't go watch that movie. I can't even remember it. It might be really bad. It was 20 years ago. I was not preaching at the time. Just please don't go see it. Okay. But it just, it, it just, even the idea that, that, if Jesus was telling the truth and you betrayed him or you denied him, how, how just the eternal consequences of that. And listen, everybody feels that. Some of us more often than others, some of us all the time, some of us, that's all we feel about our relationship to Jesus is that, it, it, that it, it's there. But I mean, we're letting him down. We're not living up to whatever we think we need to be. Living up to Peter, imagine that feeling. I can't remember which gospel it is that says when he denies him the third time, the Lord looked at him. So Jesus heard it the third time and just looked at him. But the resurrection of Jesus justifies sinners. 
by his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ provides full pardon for sinners and justifies them completely, making them not just washed clean, but completely righteous before God by his work alone, irrespective of anything they have done or not done. The omission and the commission. The resurrection of Jesus then means hope for the worst of us, even the deniers and the habitual failures, in fact, especially them. The cross of Jesus was meant to reach down into the lowest depths humanity can go to rescue people. That is what will show the glory and sufficiency of just precisely what Jesus accomplished by his death and his resurrection. The worse you are when he saves you, the better he is as a savior. So the angel says, you go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter was the source for Mark's gospel. That he will see you soon. He's going ahead of you. He'll be waiting for you. He wants you back. I doubt they were anxious to see him if he did in fact keep his word in return. They had all forsaken him and fled. The resurrection was as inconceivable for the original disciples as it is for many of us this morning. Their reasons might have been different from ours, but how can this be true? And when... When we ask that as human beings, it might not be the science of it all that bothers us the most. Maybe it's just too hard to believe that this one work by this one man 2,000 years ago is enough to atone for me and what I am and account for what I am and what I've done. That, that that could be the way salvation comes to people. Maybe that's what really at the end of the day is so hard to believe. But this was not just any man. This was Jesus Christ. Every week, every week, we gather on Sunday mornings to worship the first day of the week rather than the seventh day. Saturday, because Jesus Christ rose from the grave on Sunday. So Sunday became the Lord's Day in Christian category. So just by virtue of gathering every Sunday, we're implicitly celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It ought to be explicit every Sunday. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. This morning, you realize this. This morning, all our hopes and dreams as Christians that this is really true and God will really accomplish all that he promised are riding completely on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I are throwing ourselves, all our salvation, all our justification, completely on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why we will be saved. That is why we will be forgiven. That is why we will be counted as righteous. That's why one day everything sad will come untrue. This is why. 
It's literally the only reason in the universe to have hope and not be a fool for it. Will this world really be one day swallowed up by a new one? Will all pain and suffering and sorrow and sin and death and tears really end? Will God really win? Will all war and famine and disease and abuse and suffering really end? Will everything one day really change for good? Will all one day finally be well? Will there really be peace forever? Will we really be reunited with loved ones who have gone on in the Lord? But to put it even more personally, is God really going to forgive all of my sins? Are people like me really going to be pardoned forever? Is that real? Will all our guilt be washed away? All of it. Will he truly throw my sins as far away as the east is from the west? With all my guilt and trespasses and iniquities, will it all sink to the bottom of the sea of forgetfulness? Are all my sins stones or will they float forever? Am I righteous? Am I righteous? Not did I do my best. Am I righteous enough to stand in the presence of a holy God? Does God really accept me just as I stand here this morning with all my effort and intentions, but with an actual record that falls woefully short of his standard? Can God receive someone like me? These are the questions we ask, that I ask as Tony Romano. Is there hope for me in spite of what the people who really know me think? In spite of the people that really know my record, that I've sinned against? Is all this true even though they have an issue with me? They have things to hold over my head. Is there really hope is the question we're asking. And I hear two words. And Peter. The denier. The hypocrite. There is hope this morning. Now. Is it because one day humanity will finally get its ducks in a row and figure out how to get rid of its problems and liabilities? Is that the, is, is that the reason for the audacity of hope? Will we one day figure it out? And if, if, if the right things are done and the right people are eliminated and the right things are eliminated from society, will we then actually live up to our potential? Will there then be peace on the earth? Will we finally crack the code of world peace and of poverty and of injustice and famine? Is that why there's hope? And so if everyone does their part, then humanity will finally reach utopia. No. Make no mistake, that will happen. 
But it won't be because of me. It won't be because of you. It won't be because of our children or their children or their children or who we elect or who's in charge or It will be because 2,000 years ago, God rolled away a stone and Jesus Christ got up from the dead and walked out of the tomb alive. That's why. At the resurrection, beloved humanity was rescued The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives hope and the future back to humanity. Without it, it does not exist. It's over. It's ruined. His exclusive place-taking death took away the sting of death for us because through that death, God would raise him from the dead. If a crucified man has been raised from the dead, cursed by God, then humanity has hope. If a crucified man can be raised from the dead, so can you and I. And Paul will go on to say in Ephesians that for all who believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, God has raised them up with him and will raise them again when he comes for them also. The resurrection is a promise to all who have to be convinced that yes, It counts for you. It applies to you, just like Peter. It's finished for him too. It's finished for me. It's finished for you. He's done it. He's done it. That's why we're here. Whether we realize that when we gather or not, Jesus Christ has conquered death. Every human being is in lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Every human being. Jesus Christ is victorious over it for all who believe him. Please listen to me. I speak to you as a sinner. Not as a guy who finds it a nice notion that Jesus would be kind to sinners. I'm talking to you as somebody he has been kind to in spite of of the amount of my sin and my guilt and my iniquity and my trespasses. Every time we gather, yes, remember that he's risen from the dead. Remember that your pastor's not being struck dead by lightning coming through the ceiling also because Jesus is merciful. And because Jesus has risen from the dead and doesn't kill men like me for daring to speak on his behalf. I am evidence, me, that this stuff is the truth. For all those who believe, all of you, there is full pardon for your sins. Do you believe this? Full pardon, no strings attached, nothing remaining over your your head, no time served, no probation. It's just pardoned. You won't be a second class citizen in the new heavens and the new earth. You'll have all the rights and privileges appearing there too. That belong to the Son, the only begotten Son. Full pardon for sins. Full pardon. I just can't believe that. Well, that's the rub. That, that's it. That's all we're talking about here. Believe it. It's, it's, if it's not for you, who is it for? 
If it's not for me, who is it for? Full pardon for sins and all the righteousness God accepts. All the righteousness God will take. All of it comes to you in Christ. Jesus Christ stamps us with his righteousness to the degree that when God looks at us and considers us, he considers us justified. Justified. Yes, the accuser will roar. There are plenty of accusers. Every person in the world could get a line of people stretching who knows how far of people to say it's not fair that you would forgive them of their sin. Right? It's not fair that you would look over what they did and wash it away. But Jesus will say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's not that it wasn't dealt with. It's not that nobody gets punished for it. I was punished for it. I bore the wrath for it. The fire and brimstone from God that you are owed was poured out on me. And to believe in me is to believe in what has satisfied the wrath, the righteousness, the holiness of a God who loved his creation enough to send a son to stand in the gap between him and us. For all who believe there is full pardon for sins. There is the gift of all the righteousness God accepts. All is a gift of his grace, all bought and paid for by the one who gave his life. And to stamp it for us so that we knew that's what it was. God raised him from the dead to assure us it's all true. There's a local legend in Jackson, Mississippi, I believe, of a pastor who got up one Easter Sunday morning to his packed church building and said, it's all true, and sat down. And people look at it two ways. Either he was lazy or he believed it's enough and the truth is powerful enough. And listen, beloved, that's all there is to say, really, despite I've been talking for 34 minutes. It's all true. It's all true. It's all true for you and for me. Only believe. Believe this. Go tell his disciples and Peter and you and the people working at Grace today if they're open. People working the restaurants, the stores, the people you work with, the people on Capitol Hill, the people in North Korea and Uganda and Rwanda and Azerbaijan and Iraq and Australia and England and Greenland and Iceland and the Yukon Territory and Alaska and Nebraska and it's all true. Jesus Christ is alive and he saves. Run to him and rest. Be done. Happy Easter, beloved.